This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Today we're going to talk about A Lesson Before Dying, Ernest Gaines' great novel, which unfortunately not enough of my friends know about this amazing book. Um, I actually first approached Gaines through A Gathering of Old Men, which I loved and was a very moving novel. And then when I started reflecting on how to die well for the scandal of holiness, I picked up this novel. So it was kind of, this was my first read. I've only read it once now. And so I invited Jack Heller from Huntington University because he knows the novel better than I do so that I can ask him questions and talk about this book and why it is that he loves it. So Jack, thanks for spending this time talking about it. All right, it's my pleasure. I appreciate it. Would you mind introducing yourself to people in case they don't know you or aren't familiar with you? Uh, my name is Jack Heller. I'm a professor of English at uh, Huntington University in Huntington, Indiana. Uh, this is my 20th year here. And uh, I teach in the areas of uh, uh, Shakespeare, Renaissance drama, and uh, American literature, primarily African-American literature. So these are some of my uh, areas of interest. And as a sideline, I'm also a uh, prison volunteer. So. Oh, fantastic. Oh, that's wonderful. That gives you even more experience, of course, being able to talk about the novel. Do you mind talking about how you came to this novel? What was your first experience with it? Uh, I also first read A Gathering of Old Men. Okay. Uh, this would have been probably in the late 1980s. And uh, A Lesson Before Dying came out in 1993. And around that time, I was a graduate student at Louisiana State University. And around that time, Ernest Gaines came and did a reading from A Lesson Before Dying. Wow. And I suspect that that's around the time I bought the novel. <laughs> Uh, it's so long ago that I don't really remember <laughs> when did I exactly first read it. Yeah. But uh, but I heard him do a reading of at least the first two chapters, and uh, uh, thereafter, at some point, I read it, and then I first started teaching it, probably around two thousand and two. Wow. That so? Did you get to meet Gaines during that visit? I've met Gaines several times. Oh my gosh! I didn't know that. <laughs> Well, uh, informally, I mean, I can't yeah. say that we were buddies by any means, yeah. but uh, but we, uh, I'm, I heard him do that presentation in uh, 2016. I participated in a National Endowment for the Humanities program studying his work and uh, met him again then, even had been to his home, wow. uh, gave him a bottle of Four Roses bourbon. Uh, <laughs> And uh, 2017, uh, even shared a bottle. Oh, <laughs> I think it was Maker's Mark with him. Yeah, uh, not too much, not too much with him. But, <laughs> but I had interesting. The few times I was able to talk with him, it was very interesting to uh, engage with him. And so I, I've I've had that privilege uh, yeah. several times. Um, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. But. Right. One thing I was able to do, uh, which appears in some of his writings, 
is attend one of the uh, cemetery cleanings that he talks about. Uh, that cemetery that appears in a gathering of old men mm -hmm. uh, is behind where his home was located. Wow. And um, uh, he talks about the cemetery cleanings in his uh, Mozart and Leadbelly, oh. uh, along with this, uh, with the lesson before dying. So, yeah. Oh, that's that's fantastic. I mean, I know I do want to talk about lesson before dying, but I, I want to know a little bit more about Gaines, if you don't mind. Uh, I mean, what what was his demeanor like? I, I you know I've met lots of writers and they kind of vary across the map whether they're more reserved or they're more open. I would say he was genteel, uh, quite quite willing to engage with people. Uh, you know he. Uh, when we had a reception, he was not off in the corner. He was yeah. uh, very much willing to talk with uh, with the folks who were there. Uh, really could throw a good spread. I mean, uh, the the, the uh, time that I attended that cemetery cleaning, he, he fed everybody who had, who did that. Uh, gumbo, all the stuff that you see as food in a, a lesson before dying yeah. was food when he when his uh, he and his wife uh, uh, hosted uh, hosted people. Yeah. Uh, his wife is the person that a lesson before dying uh, was dedicated to. So mm. uh, uh, had that opportunity. Always a great uh, person to talk with. I I think. But, uh, yeah. Again, I don't want to over over claim. Right. Right. Yeah. Our buddies, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I had this privilege several times of meeting him. Oh, that's great. And um, did he talk about his work at all? Were you able, I mean, you've read a lot on his work, so you probably know how he thought about his own work. He did. Uh, the The time that I met him with the NEH participants, a lot of that was a Q&A opportunity. Hmm. Uh, and we were all over the place in the conversations there. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and I'm sure that I asked something. I, I wouldn't have let that pass but I don't remember what it was. <laughs> oh, that's great. So uh, tell me tell me about A Lesson Before Dying, especially for people who aren't aware of the story. Um, so what is, you know, in my, in my book, I only go into really what is this transformation that happens for Jefferson, but do you mind giving mm -hmm. some background about the story and why it was written? The story was uh, begun in the 1980s and completed I think late in the 80s and published in 1993. And it was his follow-up to A Gathering of Old Men. Uh, what it's about essentially is that there, there are two men. One has been falsely accused of robbery and murder, uh, but he was convicted as could be anticipated in the 1940s in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. uh, he was sentenced to be executed. This would be Jefferson. Mm -hmm. He's tried, he's convicted, he's sentenced. His godmother afterwards uh, approaches another young man uh, in the same community and says, uh, tells him that she wants him to go to the jail and help this young man understand the value of his own life. Help him to understand what it means, what it would have, what it means to be a man, what it would, what the value of his life should have been, what it, not, not that he didn't value his own life, but what it was that the culture was missing uh, in, in the value of his life. Mm -hmm. And 
what we come to find out along the way is that both of these men really don't see it themselves. They don't see themselves as having that value. Mm -hmm. So a lesson before dying in some ways is a lesson of who the individual is, uh, what is that person's worth, uh, how do we measure a person's worth, uh, how do we prepare ourselves for uh, our own ends, uh, a lesson before dying. Jefferson gets a lesson before dying that his, his was a life that had value. Uh, his value was not appreciated, uh, but it had value. He learns this. He learns that uh, he is capable of acts of love. He doesn't really know that, but he, he's capable, capable of it. So he learns that. At the same time, while this teacher is visiting him, he has to learn this too. And, and I would say that there are two characters that get lessons before dying. Yeah. Uh, and one of them has some years ahead of him to still apply it. So, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, maybe it should have been called lessons before dying instead of a lesson before dying. Because even, you know, the, the reverend seems to have learned some. I mean, the way that Gaines approaches almost the whole town, when you think about it at the very end of the story, there's so many people that have learned some lessons or mm -hmm. dying. I would say that the Reverend, is, I mean, he's a very interesting character and Gaines talks about him in contrast to a preacher character in a gathering of old men. Mm. Uh, Gaines in one of his uh, interviews indicates that he got letters from African-American readers responding to a gathering of old men and asking why did he make that preacher in that novel such a dope mm. <laughs> wow. and and uh he was very conscious of of you know making reverend ambrose not a dope not to say that he doesn't have some problems his, his you know himself particularly in relation to the radio that that appears mm -hmm. in the novel uh, but uh, he has something that even Grant doesn't have. Uh, he recognizes, I think, before Grant does, uh, the value of Jefferson's life, mm. although he thinks that that value is only a spiritual value. Mm. And I think that's something that, that, that he needs to learn, um, that it's not just that. But at the same time, I think he recognizes Jefferson's not uh, this is the word used in the novel, not mm -hmm. a hog, before mm -hmm. Grant and Jefferson themselves recognize that. So, mm -hmm. I have a friend who wrote this book called um, You Are Not Your Own. And in it, it's uh, Alan Noble. And in it, he talks about how uh, your identity, you can profess your identity as one thing, but if the culture doesn't then recognize that identity what value does that identity have and it seems like that's a lot of what this novel is also addressing is that our identity is not just a matter of our own self-assertion it also has to be something that's recognized in the community that we're a part of right and and i think uh you know as it turns out it's mostly the older uh members of the community mm -hmm. who recognize that reverend ambrose Miss Emma, that's Jefferson's godmother. Mm -hmm. uh, Tante Lou, that's uh, uh, Grant's aunt. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Vivian also, 
I think yeah. recognizes that. Uh, Vivian, for uh, since we're introducing the novel, yeah. Grant's girlfriend. All right. Uh, but Grant doesn't really understand it. Jefferson doesn't understand it. And certainly the, uh, the dominant white community mm -hmm. uh, won't even give the thought of, uh, you know, any, any consideration at all. Uh, so all of this has to happen within the black community mm -hmm. uh, in this fictional area that, that, uh, that Gaines has created. And uh, uh, I think that, yeah. Do you think that that happens then by the end? I mean, do you think that I, and I'm also wondering, I mean, why does it have to take place in this way, which I love and I have my own thoughts on it, but I'm interested to hear yours. Why does it have to take place looking at it in terms of death, looking at it where you have a deadline in a sense for a person, you know, when his death is coming, it has a date, it has a time. Why do we need that stamp? on the narrative um, in order for these questions to be raised. Gaines addresses that in an interesting way in his essay uh, about writing the novel. Mm -hmm. He did actually think about, did he want to do a governor's pardon? Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad he didn't. <laughs> uh, uh, now, of course, the novel would have had a happier ending mm -hmm. if he had. Mm -hmm. but but I think in some ways, uh, true to his work across his novels, uh, all through his novels, the, the Black characters in Gaines's novels are living without access to justice. Mm -hmm. uh, when we think about the history of, of, of Black America, you know, there's a certain sense that, that, that we always, I mean, I, I've been to a lot of museums of African-American history. Sometimes, um, depending on who's running the museum, uh, there's almost a kind of a, well, all that was the past, but it's all mm -hmm. progressing right now. It's mm -hmm. all becoming better right now. And I don't know that in 1830, anybody would have seen this. I mean, if you were enslaved, what was going to be the end of one's life? You, mm -hmm. Your life might always for its entirety be that. Mm -hmm. So I think what Gaines is looking at uh, in some ways is how do we live when there is no assurance of justice, mm -hmm. uh, when there is no cultural understanding of one's value, uh, when the oppressiveness of the context uh, just closes off possibility. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he was right. Gaines also considered setting this as contemporary to the time he was writing yeah. this. And then he moved it back to the uh, 1940s. And I think that was important to the story he wrote because you could not, from the context of this novel, anticipate mm -hmm. the civil rights movement, uh, you know, the, the changes in law. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you live when oppression is 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 your context? Mm -hmm. And I think uh, I think in some ways I don't know if this is one of the uh, novels that you, that you address in your text, mm -hmm. although it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> I think in some ways, you know, we're looking at circumstances that might even be sort of parallel to say uh, uh, Indo silence or something mm -hmm. like yeah. that, yeah. Uh, where you can't really force upon this a happy ending. Mm -hmm. 
without that possibility, now what? What do we do right. when we can't have that? This podcast is sponsored by Brasses Press. Brasses Press publishes books that creatively draw upon the riches of the Christian story to deepen our understanding of God's world and inspire faithful reflection and engagement. A Brazos Press book that I recommend is How to Inhabit Time, Understanding the Past, Facing the Future, Living Faithfully Now by James K.A. Smith. In the book, Smith helps Christians and the church develop a sense of temporal awareness that is attuned to the texture of history, the vicissitudes of life, and the tempo of the spirit. Smith shows that awakening to the spiritual significance of time is crucial for orienting faith in the 21st century. Get 40% off and free shipping at bakerbookhouse.com with code READING. Yeah, I, well, I, I think it's such an interesting question with him setting it in the 1940s because there's always this question about the role that literature plays in cultural, you know, the cultural memory. Mm -hmm. Right. And so here it's not like Elie Wiesel's Night written actually in the 1940s where Wiesel says, never shall I forget, never shall I forget. And but there's this insistence upon not forgetting the tragedies of our past in some ways, being able to draw on the past and the tragedies of the past. We're able to re-see the tragedies of our current time in a way that if you have a novel set in our current time, people assume a certain political angle, there becomes tribalism, people don't want to read it, but going backwards kind of frees you from that because, you know, you're, you're not in the 1940s anymore. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I understand that, although uh, uh, going back to my sort of introductory comment here, yeah. uh, the, the novel had something to do with my sort of thinking about, well, after all, do I want to be involved in working in prisons? Yeah. Uh, and and I have, uh, I have, I did not teach, but I helped to get a group started within a prison reading this novel. And there, there was a lot of interesting response to this novel uh, read in that context. Now, many of the men that would have read it in that context uh, would have been, I think, sort of properly adjudicated. Not all of them. I mean, mm -hmm. there's some there's some wrongful convictions mm -hmm. uh, within where I volunteer, but there are also those that it was very. I mean, they would say so themselves. Why why contradict it? But for all of that, the understanding I think that they can themselves sort of work through. Yes, there's a value here regardless mm -hmm. there's a value here humanity has its own value we yeah. don't need to find something else somewhere else to say okay that's the value jefferson uh uneducated mm -hmm. unemployed or underemployed uh he thinks of himself as a hog mm -hmm. that word really has that tremendous effect on him and he needs to find a way to get through that beyond that mm -hmm. part of what humanizes jefferson isn't so much does what does he learn about himself but he learns well okay let me rephrase that he learns something about himself but it's an unexpected lesson what he learns is he's capable of loving somebody mm -hmm. and it's not a it's not a romantic love it's loving his godmother yeah you know uh learning to appreciate what she's trying to do for him 
And I would add, to some degree, within the within the context of friendship, loving Grant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, responding to to uh, to him as well. Uh, so uh, so that I think that's a lot of how this works out. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. Well, I, I want to ask you two questions now, and they're completely different because you, you said two different things. One, I would love to hear more about what prisoners' responses are to a lesson before dying. And that's going to be a completely different question than the second one I want to ask you, but I'll go ahead and ask it so I don't forget. Um, in the in the novel, also you have Jefferson coming to terms with, I'm taking my Nanon's cross, I'm taking your cross. That's a lot to ask, mm-hmm. right? So it, but he also is he's transforming his imagination of his situation. It seems like, right? And how and how does that play a role in his move from seeing himself as a hog to seeing himself differently? Um, so those are kind of my two big questions. Well, let's see. The first one there was about uh, prisoners. Prisoners, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, the, I think they've responded very well to it. I uh, One of the things I recall, particularly when I was talking with one of the men that had read it, was his sense of how that novel sort of defines masculinity in some ways. Mm. Being a man in... in, yeah. in and a, a lesson before dying is to learn to love, mm-hmm. to appreciate. And I think that that, that gentleman that, that I was speaking with uh, really picked up on that, hmm. uh, on that novel. There is a strength in Jefferson that he discovers that has mm-hmm. nothing to do with um, enforcing power on other people. Mm-hmm. It's an inner strength that, that allows him to love. I think that your um, student you know, was picking up on prisoner. I don't know. I don't want to refer to somebody by just one word now, sure. um, but you know what, what he's picking up on there, I think is, is accurate to what mm-hmm. Jefferson discovers, what it means to be a human being. The second question was about um, how Jefferson's imagination of what he's going through transforms mm-hmm. because, you know, he starts very self pitying in the opening. I mean, it's so, it's, it's almost like he's more, he's narrowly confining himself even further then his situation is confined because of what he's seeing himself. Um, and then it starts to open up to other people in a different way at, towards the end of the novel. One of the things that I've struggled with with this novel is trying to think through, okay, what is, what is James trying to show us with the last bits of what Jefferson communicates to mm-hmm. us? Uh, because... Uh, we get it through Grant to some degree, not just from Jefferson. It's Mm -hmm. the very last person's thoughts we have were back to Grant. Mm -hmm. And Grant has this moment where he he says something like, he thinks that that God was with Jefferson, that somehow Mm -hmm. or other uh, Jefferson may have had a a Christian or spiritual conversion. Uh, 
I'm, I'm inconclusive on that. I, I don't think it's a yes or a no on that. Uh, but to some degree within the, within the diary section of the novel, there is a kind of a framing that goes on there. Jefferson does recognize that his situation has some parallel to the situation of Christ uh, coming to his end. Jefferson says that he will walk as Christ walked. He, mm -hmm. he, will, uh, he will withstand as Christ withstood. Uh, to that degree, certainly there's a transformation of his mm -hmm. character. Uh, I don't think it, that, that Gaines doesn't show that to us as affirming doctrines, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. but it, it's, it's more of a kind of an identification that seems, uh, you know, this is, this is Christ as his sort of a forerunner. Mm -hmm. uh, he will do uh, as had been done. He will learn that. It's interesting, uh, you know, for those who haven't read the novel, Gaines does give a kind of a framing on the liturgical calendar. Uh, Christmas is an important uh, segment of the novel and also this execution uh, two weeks after Easter, but yeah. you'll never be, you'll never forget that it's two weeks after right, Easter. Right, right. When you read this novel. I'm actually glad you highlighted it because that is not something I that I paid attention to when I read it. I wasn't thinking, which for me is kind of crazy too, because Walker Percy always frames his novels that way with, you know, mm -hmm. Christmas or July 4th or Mardi Gras. He's always framing according to the liturgical year. Um, mm -hmm. But I wasn't, I wasn't registering that. So I'm so glad that you highlighted it. Now I want to go back and read it a second time and mm -hmm. see how that timeline works. Uh, but it, you know, historically, of course, that's that's also a trope that's used in the African-American tradition, isn't it? The idea of the black Christ and identifying with Christ as an innocent sufferer, like the scapegoat in the society that's sure. passed out, right? I mean, you, do you see, I mean, you teach African-American literature. Don't, do you see that throughout, right? Sure. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, I note in your, yeah. in your <laughs> chapter that you sent me that you, uh, you draw from County Cole, and certainly mm -hmm. he brings it out uh, in, in what he has to say. Uh, it it's also brings to my mind also Frederick Douglass mm -hmm. uh, in his narrative, uh, you know, here's Christ and here's Christians, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and these do not all come yeah. together. And uh, Douglass makes this claim that, that Christ, the real Christ, is mm -hmm. as far from the white slave owners Christ right. as, 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 as possible to be. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, we may even have some of that same framing right here. Mm -hmm. uh, when Grant at the end re rejects uh, um, white spirituality, rejects a kind of a white faith. Uh, it doesn't seem to me like he's rejecting any possibility of, of a, of a faith. Mm -hmm. uh, but he, he says, you know, if, do I have my book handy? I don't know if I ought to be I've reading, got, got mine. <laughs> reading on, 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 uh, but uh, it'll be around 251. Don't tell me to believe. Mm -hmm. uh, don't tell me to believe in the same God or laws that men believe in who commit these murders. Well, Exactly, right? But the same God right there is not all God or every God. Right. It's 
this God. It's the God of whoever would approve yeah. this execution. So yeah. very much uh, playing that through. I was thinking when you're talking about Douglas, exactly right. When he in um, my bondage and my freedom, when he talks, is that where he talks about the blackbirds flying up? And he says, I knew two things in that instance when I saw the blackbirds singing freely, mm-hmm. right? That God was good and that slavery was a crime. Right. It's this it's this instant register of the difference between the white Christian God that was being propagated to him versus the one he was finding in natural law, in revelation, and also through the guidance of spiritual mentors, right, within the black mm-hmm. church. And it, I I love I mean, I just I love that parallel. Um I also have you read um I know you probably have. You've read Jesus and the Disinherited, Howard Thurman. I love Thurman. Well, you know what? That's on my camp. He begins with saying, okay, let's look at Jesus for a second, because the Jesus that is sometimes preached or that I've heard preached is not the Jesus that we see in the Gospels. And so he really talks about a Jesus with his back against the wall is how he keeps talking about Jesus. And that Mm -hmm. image of Jesus with his back against the wall is so much in a lesson before dying. I mean, that's what Jefferson's back is against the wall, the entire narrative. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just this identity between the way that Thurman describes Jesus and the way that Gaines describes Jefferson that just really has stuck with me image wise. You know, another thing that interests me that I think kind of, kind of enters into this moment here, frequently in this novel, uh, the white supremacist way of thinking mm-hmm. is sort of represented uh, I'm not trying to over-Christianize the novel, but yeah. it almost looks a little bit secular, like there's a secular focus to the white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the elements of the white supremacist thought of that opening chapter is very much a kind of a social Darwinism, hmm. you know. Uh, this this uh, He uses the word species. He uses mm-hmm. uh, animal, you know, the deepest jungle, the... Darkest, I don't remember the yeah. exact quote, but this phrase in there about the deepest, darkest Africa, yeah. you've got this notion that that the shape of his head, he uses even some of that, mm-hmm. all right? All of that nonsense that used to occur around the 20s is kind of a uh, scientific sort of version of racism. Mm-hmm. And, and that almost undergirds, like when uh, uh, there's a scene a little bit later than that, where the school superintendent shows up uh, at the school where, where Grant teaches, and all of his interaction looks like he's examining horses mm. rather than people. Yeah. All right. And uh, I mean, almost explicitly so. Mm. So the, 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 there's a kind of a, um, uh, and I, again, I'm not trying to over state religion or whatever, but there's a really interesting sort of contrast between the religious faith, not just of Reverend Ambrose or potentially of Jefferson, or, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, the godmother, uh, Miss Emma, Tante Lou, mm-hmm. the termination songs, yeah. the church services, mm-hmm. even Vivian, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who was very committed to to uh, a different faith, Christian faith still, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but different from from uh, uh, Miss Emma. And all of that in contrast to sort of this kind of deeply, as if it were an objective thing, hmm. uh, secular kind of uh, uh, racism there. 
Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is this idea of the contrast between the forces. So social Darwinism or white supremacy, or this is the way that things are versus the agency that's being granted, you know, through grant, (laughs) you know, in this, in this novel with Jefferson that, you know, even when he talks about that example of um, who's the neighbor who carves wood, driftwood into Mr. Farrell, Mr. Farrell, right? It's the idea of this agency of being made into something else that you don't have to be just the driftwood. You don't have Mm -hmm. to be classified that way or, um, you know, as though your fate is determined out, you know, because of your race or your fate is determined because of society's claims on you. Instead, mm-hmm. there's this agency, and maybe that's a lot of what Lesson Before Dying is moving us to, is that even though death is inevitable, there is the agency towards, you know, until your death. There is that that will and that freedom that's there. And again, Grant needs to learn all of that, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he yeah. has to teach it, and he has to learn it, too. It's, it's sort of like a professor knowing he's going to teach a novel in three weeks and he's to read it in the next two. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you have to be one step ahead of your students in order to be able to teach anybody. Well, and, and mm-hmm. I would say even at the end, you know, ultimately what matters is whether we got the lesson before dying after the novel closes because Grant and Jefferson are fictional <laughs> and we're not. You know, there's actually a, uh, a, a again, I reviewed uh, uh Gains his essay on writing the novel. Yeah. And he concludes his essay. I don't, I hope you don't mind my reading. No, please, please close, uh, close with Gaines's words. That's the best place to uh-huh. start. Uh, well, we can go on as long as you like, but this is how <laughs> he closes this essay. Gaines says, I try to create characters with character to help develop my own character and maybe the character of the reader who might read me. That is so, beautiful. you know, I think a large part of, of this novel uh, is, in, in some ways, this novel strikes me as sort of more than most really kind of demanding something of the reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. This may be just me, but I don't know if I could be doing the same things I was doing before Mm -hmm. uh, as I would do afterwards. It seems like there's an expectation. It seems like there's some sort of call upon our lives to some degree on the basis of this novel. I think there are lots of good works of literature that that will change our ways of thinking Uh, will help us to sort of advance in what our lives are. But to some degree, this novel, uh, I think, is very direct in saying, will we see people we may not have seen before in a different light? Uh, Will we truly say that there is a value to that life? Mm -hmm. And if there is, then what we're going to do about it, you know? Uh, you know, what, it could be a variety of things, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, oddly enough, one of the, one of the actions for, as we're introducing this novel to Mm -hmm. people, one of the actions that's portrayed as heroic in this novel is eating a bowl of soup. Yeah. There's a moment in there where that is the thing identified as a heroic act. 
but it's a heroic act because it's an act of gratitude and love. Mm -hmm. uh, and just the simplest possibilities uh, for can we start to do some things right? Uh, this novel seems to me very much a, a, a novel with the potential at least uh, to say, okay, there are some demands upon us uh, and, and we need to sort of figure out what those are. And, and I think Gaines is on that, on that uh, conclusion that I read there. I think so too. And I think you said it incredibly well. I think that I probably should have talked to you even before I wrote this chapter <laughs> because uh, uh, I feel like I've learned a lot about the novel, um, but there's always time to write more books and write again on this book at some point. Uh -huh. so. Uh, so thank you for taking the time to be with us today. I really appreciate it. No problem. No problem. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.